This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Los Angeles Lakers owner Jeannie Buss. The daughter of NBA Hall of Famer Dr. Jerry Buss, Jeannie took over as Lakers governor upon her father's passing in 2013. Since then, she's been at the helm of the NBA's third most valuable franchise, and in 2020 became the first female controlling owner to win an NBA championship. In perhaps the height of awkwardness, uh, the crew put Jeannie up to not only wishing, but singing along in Happy Birthday to me since we were filming the sit-down interview on August 17th, which happened to be my 37th birthday. So the crew and Jeannie sang along as our esteemed producer, Brad, uh, delivered a cake to me on set and you can tell by the look on my face just how uncomfortable i was before we get started i just had a question for you oh yeah sure like what's it like to be turning 37 years old why because i'm asking you this question because it's your birthday and you're turning 37 And so, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear Graham, happy birthday to you. What was perhaps most remarkable about spending time with Jeannie is the fact that if you did not know who she was or what her title is, you would have no idea she's anybody of stature. She is, without question, the most humble, unassuming person we've ever profiled in 14 years of the show. Bus reflects on ascending the front office ranks under the tutelage of her father. And he would ask my opinion. And, you know, that that was a powerful thing to be listened to. Discusses how Kobe Bryant's death still impacts her today. I don't know if I'm ever going to get over it. And reveals how she helped her now husband, Jay Moore, battle prescription drug addiction. He knew he was going to die if he didn't get help. I guess she loved me until I could love myself. We also tag along with a couple to the famous Hollywood Improv Comedy Club. Good to see you guys. This is fun, huh? But we begin our conversation with one of Jeannie's little-known hobbies. I was talking to your best friend Stacy the other day, and she uh, referred to you guys as real estate groupies. <laughs> yes. I'm curious your thoughts on um, that. You know, uh, that's how I grew up. My dad made his money in real estate and real estate development. And so I think it's in my blood. Mm-hmm. And so if I wasn't working in sports, I would definitely be doing something in real estate. Like what, you think? Um, you know, I don't know. I think probably development, you know, like... Um, you know, especially like repurposing old buildings. It can add so much to, you know, your way of life, your community, you know. So I just, real estate is a passion, but it's a hobby. It's not something I do. I understand you like visiting houses on the weekends, going to these open houses, but not even in nice neighborhoods necessarily. Here's the thing, (laughs) the way I look at it, I know, like real estate agents 
by name. They're kind of like celebrities to me. Like, you know, I know which real estate agent has, you know, the bus bench that I drive by every day. And, you know, it's just, I, it's just a, a weird quirk that I have. How often are you on the apps? Um, all the time. Yeah. All the just for, as like guilty pleasure, fun. Yes, fun. absolutely. Okay, you own, I think, like three places in walking distance yeah. of, <laughs> what's the Raven's Den? The Raven's Den, oh, <laughs> I call it the guest house. I didn't know it had gotten the nickname Raven's Den. But it's um, it's actually a place that I, I purchased during um, COVID. And I lent it to people who had to isolate because they had uh, uh, COVID and needed to be away from their family. So it's just a, it's a little one bedroom loft apartment. And, you know, it's just kind of fun to have. And you aren't that big into traveling, right? You've been headed to the airport before on a trip and just literally changed your mind when you're driving there. I'm just not a good traveler. It's like it takes a toll on me. So, um, you know, and I, and I, you know, I, I just don't have that need to see everything. Like, I know some people are like that. They have to, like, check it off their list. And I don't have a list. We also spoke with Jeannie's now husband, actor and comedian Jay Moore. I think that also speaks to how good a home life could be, too. Like you're so happy and comfortable being at home, you know, watching TV with your dogs, with the love of your life. It just, I think it speaks to like, no, this, this is vacation now. Like we, we now, we now are on vacation because we found each other and we can just relax and enjoy life. Last summer, I was obsessed because the Blues Brothers, you know, with Dan Aykroyd and Belushi, uh, played at um, the prison where they filmed the movie and they did a concert and so not only did I have to go to it I had to be a sponsor of it like I just it was you know so like something like that for sure I would do but that that was like a unique experience and what's the deal with you in movies well movies <laughs> like that's something that I did with my dad okay. every weekend. And my dad, because he was always working, and this was when I'm in high school, junior high, um, when he ha would have a day off to go see movies, he'd want to see three or four movies in a day. And so we would have a movie marathon. And so I, I, like movie theaters are very important to me because of that fond memory that I make sure I try to go to the movies every week to a movie theater to support um, that industry because I don't want it to go away. It's too important and I think it's kind of a, an event that people can do together and we're losing those things as people stay at home. And you won't just buy one ticket, though. Explain oh, no. why. I, well, because I, I want to support the movie theater, and so I buy a bunch of tickets and let everybody know, like, hey, I'm going to this movie this day at this time. And they always know I have tickets. So, like, um, if anybody wants to join, they're welcome to join. So from the time you were in elementary school, I think all you ever wanted to do was be in the family business. You said, I consider myself an ambitious person almost to my own detriment. Yeah. <laughs> How so? 
I just, I like to live up to the challenge, you know? So like, what am I capable of? If I saw somebody do something, then I'd be like, well, how would I accomplish that same goal? Like, I just, it's like, I guess, curiosity, you know, can, can I find that space in myself to, you know, do whatever it takes to get something done. And, and thankfully it wasn't to climb Mount Everest because that wouldn't have ever happened. <laughs> when you were a kid, you used to walk the hallways, pop into conference rooms. Uh, what sorts of things would you hear folks talk about with regards to the sports business? When I would walk into a conference room, it was usually because I was delivering donuts, right? And I was, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, and my dad said, you know, go get us this or go get some coffee, whatever. And I would bring, bring it in. And then instead of leaving, I would sit in the corner and I would listen and I would listen to the debates and that when, you know, somebody wanted something over here, what were they willing to give up over there to get what they wanted? You know, like people pounding desks, like I, I really mean this, you know, and just like the theatrics of mm -hmm. negotiating and just being completely entertained by that. How do you think that impacted you? I, I just became fascinated with the business and wanted to know more and more. And my dad saw that interest in me and he fed it. Like he, you know, if there was uh, something that was coming up in business, especially when he was involved in um, world team tennis, he would give me a report or a brief and say, what do you think of this? Yeah. And he would ask my opinion. And you know, that, that was a powerful thing to be listened to. And you know, whether I influenced him or not, he could hear my thinking and how I approached whatever the issue was. And that helped you how? Um, I think it helped me just th the idea that he had confidence in me, but I think it also mm -hmm. helped him. And that meant everything. It too. meant yeah. everything. And you know, I, I always emphasize to, to fathers to empower their daughters the same way um, because it, 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 it's just very important. I mean, both parents having them uh, listen to you, but my dad, you know, could, um, hear my thought process and how I approached things. And, you know, and, you know, he came to value that so that when things were on the line, he knew how I would deal with the problem. And that gave him more confidence to give me more authority and more responsibility. The time you spent running the forum, long hours, you were involved in a bitter labor dispute. What did that period teach you? When the job became available, my dad came to me and he said, I think you could do this job. And so as your boss, I'm offering you this job. But as your father, I'm advising you not to take it. And I didn't really understand that until I got involved and it was so time consuming because when you're running a venue, it, it allowed me to go from one side of the business, which I was the promoter, to the other side, which was running the venue and dealing with outside promoters and having them bring your, their shows to your 
venue. Um, it was valuable experience for me, but I was working, you know, 14-hour days, and you you have no social life, and so that that was a very um, difficult time. But it, and it, it went it, on for how long? Um, about four years, and so you know, I'd I'd come out of a divorce, and. Um, you know, so I, I had the time, you know, but it wasn't a lot of fun. If you had to do that over again, would you still do it? Um, I got really burnt out. Um, I guess I, I had to, to go through to get me to where I am today. And it really paid off because when we moved the Lakers to a new arena in downtown LA, um, now we are, you know, the renter. And so understanding how the, the arena operated was really important in terms of negotiating our lease, not accepting no for an answer, because I know how things work. Um, so that, that was an important part of my career. You once said about your dad, he was concerned that I would sacrifice on a personal level a relationship and a family because of my ambition. Uh, your thoughts on that today? Um, you know, in some ways he was right. And, um, you know, I think he was always my father first instead of my boss. And uh, he didn't want to see me miss out on a big part of life, which was to have a family. And I did what was right for me. And of course, as a father, he would always worry about me. Well, and at the end of the day, you have created a massive family for yourself. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think I think of uh, the Lakers as family, mm -hmm. and the fans are like family to me. Like, I like to sit at games with, you know, I don't sit in a suite. I love that that uh, people have access to me. I love taking pictures with fans and hugging them and hearing stories about who their favorite player is. You said you've gone from being like a sister to the players to a mother now. What was the kind of recognition of that change like? Um, just the, the age group, you know, when Magic came into the league, he was 19, I was 17 yeah. when my dad owned the team. So we were similar in age and then, um, as time went on, you know, now now I'm like literally the same age as their grandmothers. <laughs> and it's it's crazy, but um, I think really what changed, and you know, I, I, I talk about, you know, being on the other side of, you know, when I ran the forum and was on the venue side, uh, when I um, entered a relationship with the head coach, Phil Jackson, um, you know, I saw a whole different side of a basketball team. Really? And yeah, oh yeah, like, I mean, it was um, so different. And that's where I felt like I became more of the mother role uh, because he was kind of the father figure. You know, Phil would always call a practice on Thanksgiving and I would get so mad at him because these guys don't get enough time with their families during the season. And now you're, you're making them come in on Thanksgiving and have a practice. And he finally explained to me, he said, Jeannie, 
I'll have them home in plenty of time to have their Thanksgiving dinner. He said, but they need to understand this is their family as well. And a team really is like their extended family. And I really uh, learned to appreciate that. How do you think Alana Kloss and Billie Jean King influenced you? Billie Jean King is a mentor to me. She's a friend, but I'll never forget the day being in my dad's office and he turned on the TV and he goes, you know, I want you to watch this. And it was the Billie Jean King versus Bobby Riggs tennis match. And he said, this is gonna change the world because it was the battle of the sexes. It was, um, you know, great theater and great promotion. And I was honored to meet Billie Jean King. She's like one of those people that makes you believe that anything is possible. What did Jane Fonda teach you about a handshake? <laughs> Jane Fonda, I met her, um, you know, probably at like 14, 15 years old, and I was so in awe of her. I, I couldn't take my eyes off of her. And so, she, you know, she put out her hand for me to shake her hand, and I gave her a very weak handshake. And she pulled me aside, and she goes, I want you to remember this, that when you meet somebody, you make sure you, they remember you, and you give them a handshake, a strong handshake, look them in the eye. And that was great advice, and I, I still do it to this day. So I think you're in the room with like eight-ish people uh, at some uh, meeting. There's a heated discussion, a man cusses, uh, and what does he say to you and how do you respond? <laughs> so uh, it was a, a heated negotiation. It was, we were around a conference table and um, you know, I was, I was getting bullied in a way that is often times happens to a woman, meaning the guy, you know, used some four-letter words, and when he did, he, he turned to me specifically and say, you know, no offense, you know, pardon my language. And it was literally the, like, tap on the head little girl, you know, fragile, you know, I'm drawing attention to the fact you're the only woman in the room. And so I said, look, you know, if you're gonna apologize to me, you apologize to everybody in this room. Like, in other words, you're not gonna isolate me and make me feel less than anybody in this room. I'm an equal and I belong here. And, you know, I, I've, I've heard other women have the same kind of circumstance. It's really difficult to, um, you know, be the only woman in the room. And, you know, that was like 25 years ago. And now, you know, I'm not the only woman in the room. It, I don't stand out. And, it, and it, it's, it isn't something that people use against me like they did so many years ago. Because it was, I was, you know, uh, unusual or, a, you know, just kind of a, a prop or whatever, you know, I belonged in the room and they, they tried to take that away from me. And you felt like people uh, thought at the time you could be a, a oh, yeah, prop like, or something like Oh yeah, like, like that. just, it could be because I was the boss's daughter, you know, 
thought I was a woman, you know, whatever it was that they were just gonna be like, eh, you know, she'll get bored, she'll leave, she won't like it, you mm -hmm. know, we'll, we'll just like come at her hard, see what she's made of. And that's why you have to believe that you deserve your seat at the table. What was the situation where an NBA owner grabbed your butt <laughs> and like, what happened there? It's about the bullying and about the, you know, intimidation. And so as we were waiting, taking a break from the meeting, and everybody's in line for the buffet for lunch during the lunch break, you know, somebody grabs my ass. And I turn around and, you know, I was so shocked. But it was like, you know, again, um, if, if I didn't have uh, the confidence that my dad put in me, that was a moment where I wanted to shrink and to be nothing, that I would have, you know, gotten sick and said, I gotta go. Do I really belong here? You know, I'm just really, you know, you know, not one of the group, like, you know, I'm being singled out mm -hmm. and made me really self-conscious. So what did you end up doing? I, I just gave him a dirty look, like back off. Yeah. And I stayed in the room and I, and I realized that I might not be able to gain the respect of the existing ownership groups, but everybody that came after me I could help help them in the room because they'd be new. They'd be the new person. So the, the next new person was Mark Cuban. And I made sure that, you know, from day one, I put my hand out to him and said like, hey, if I can help you understand any of this stuff, if there's any questions, like, here's my number, like, call me, you know, and I'll help you and I'll support you. Playboy. Um, how true Doesn't even <laughs> exist anymore, Playboy magazine. Um, how true is it that uh, you were the kid in gym class who got dressed in the stall? I was very, very shy. I still am very shy, and that's probably why I'm a terrible public speaker. I am a terrible poker player, because I blush, and turn red. I would not be able to bluff mm -hmm. very well. And so Playboy was one of those things that um, you were insecure about your appearance for a period of time, yes, right? Yes, yes. And, and so appearing in Playboy was, you know, something that was a, a challenge to myself. And when I, when I um, posed, I was, you know, 32, 33 years old. Yeah. So it wasn't like I was making a rash decision and that I, I really didn't know who I was. This was something that, if that's something that I could accomplish, that would be, you know, a, a personal dream of mine. And it was on the heels of a divorce. And hey, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you contacted the magazine and yeah. pitched yourself. You have to go through a test photo shoot. And so when they came back and said it was a go, um, I didn't tell my dad that I was doing it until it was done. In a weird way, he directly impacted your interest in it, right? Yeah, I mean, my dad at one point owned, uh, you know, these, your, your viewers probably have never heard this, but there used to be uh, the Playboy Clubs, and my dad owned a Playboy Club in Phoenix, Arizona, and my Aunt Susan, his sister was a bunny. 
And so... Even Linda, your longtime oh, yeah. advisor, yeah, worked Linda at the was a, Playboy yes. Club in Chicago, I think, right? Yeah, Linda yeah. was a bunny. And there was a club in Century City. Hugh Hefner was a friend of my dad, so I met him. So, like, Playboy was, you know, kind of just part of the landscape that I grew up around. So I never thought of it as anything negative. It was always about celebrating women and... Um, you know, but I just didn't think that I would, you know, have the nerve to do it, nor would I be, um, you know, considered beautiful enough to be in the magazine. What'd your dad say when you finally he, told him? He had a he had a really good quote. He said, um, "It will be the first issue of Playboy magazine I haven't read." So therefore, he's, he's endorsing the magazine, mm -hmm. that he reads the magazine, but I'm still his daughter. Mm -hmm. And so he thought it was great that I was pursuing something that I you know, was interested in. And I spoke to Jimmy Connor's wife, Patty McGuire. She was Playmate of the Year in, I think, 1976 or 77. And um, I asked her about the experience before I ever you know, pursued it, and she said, you know, it's it's a great experience, and she goes, but always be prepared wherever you are, somebody's gonna approach you with the magazine to sign it. Like, you, you when you least expect it, mm -hmm. like the pictures never go away. And so now this is the early 90s, really before the internet <laughs> takes off, and so, like, Never dawned on me that 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 you know these pictures would have a life on the internet of their own and will always be out there, and you know when you when you pose you you accept that that's you know part of the the program, except the internet has made it that I literally you know probably. Um, receive, you know, five to 10 requests a week where people have, you know, printed the pictures and asked me to sign them. Really? And, you know, they send a, you know, a postage paid envelope for me to send it back. And I always sign them because I'm not, I don't regret taking the pictures. It's a little bit like, wow, like it, it really doesn't ever go away. But, um, you know, the idea that, you know, um, the pictures are kind of legendary. <laughs> so, so you had said, uh, had I decided not to do Playboy because others didn't approve, that would haunt me. Yeah, and and that's what I had. Literally, had somebody who I admired and respected say to me, you know, um, how is this going to help you get to where you want to go? And I thought, wow, like he clearly disapproves or is judging me for making this decision. And if I would have said, okay, stop the process, I don't want to do it because of something that he, you know, thought wasn't a good idea, I really would have been regretful that I allowed other people to dictate to me what would make me happy. What do you think you learned about yourself going through your first marriage? Um, you know, like marriage is humbling, um, that nobody gets married to end up in a divorce. And um, 
it was um, disheartening to, to go through a divorce. And I realized I, at that time, I didn't make the marriage my priority, that my husband at the time, Steve Timmons, was a world-class volleyball player, Olympic gold medalist, and uh, signed a big deal to play professional indoor volleyball in Italy. And I was trying to, um, you know, commute back and forth between LA and Italy and be supportive of him and his career without losing my career. And um, it was unsatisfying because I couldn't, you know, be there for him for the marriage. I couldn't do my job the way I wanted to. And, um, you know, it eventually failed. Explain who Jeannie Danger is. Uh, <laughs> Jeannie Dangerous was my uh, nickname. Jeannie like, Dangerous. That's like, well, when I was single, my girlfriends called me Jeannie Dangerous because it was like, you know, as serious as I was about work, I was serious um, about having fun. Okay, so we, we have a question uh, for you. Okay. <laughs> hey, Jeannie, it's your old friend, John McEnroe here. And I got a question for you. Remember back in the old days, you were a big promoter for tennis at the Forum, promoting matches with the likes of yours truly, Jimmy Connors, Andre Agassi, among others. Now you run the Lakers and own that team. My question is this, is that a step up or down for you? <laughs> See you soon. <laughs> the you guys dated after uh, each of your divorces, right? Yes. Yeah. It's like when you're both on the rebound, it's kind of like you you find your you commiserate with a person, and and I'd known John for a long time, and I, you know, there's something really adorable about him, even though he was, you know. Sometimes people would get frustrated with him in terms of his tennis and his behavior. I always saw like the heart in in John. And anyway, you know, and we made a lot of money promoting tennis events for him. And so I guess to answer John, uh, running the Lakers is <laughs> it, it, like if I didn't have the experience with you, John, I don't know if I could have dealt with some of the personalities that I've had to deal with in uh, in the NBA. But you gave me uh, really good practice. How about the best Dennis Rodman dating story? Uh, you know, like that. I did not date Dennis Rodman. I did, he, he became a member of the Lakers. Um, because he came out and said that Yeah, he, he I mean, dated. yes, yeah. I guess, in other words, when my dad brought on Dennis Rodman to the team, yeah. it was kind of like, let's make sure that we know where he is at all times. So like, if it's, if it's about, you know, hey, where, where are you gonna be tonight, okay? we're all going to this restaurant or we're going to this club or we're going to this beach or we're going to wherever Dennis is going to be. You could say it was dating to say, say that it was, you know, making sure that I had an eye on him. So we obviously spent time with you and uh, Jay yesterday. So explain the living situation setup. Okay, everybody is going to want to live exactly the same way. 
It does sound kind We're, of amazing. Right now we live in a, a building that has three units. So I live on the top floor and Jay lives on the first floor. And so there's, you know, a couple that live in between us. So we're, we live together, we're at the same address, except I'm unit three and he's unit one. We don't really want to change anything because, you know, I like my space and I have my schedule and he likes his space and he has his schedule. But we're, you know, I can, you know, take the elevator down in my slippers and, you know, hang out a little bit and go back up. And I would recommend it to any couple that feels the same way. It's like, all right, I'm going to go upstairs. Like, okay. I mean, we see each other every morning, every afternoon and every night. When you're home alone in your bed, it's like, the guys are gross. <laughs> like, we just make sounds. Like, we sweat, the, sh the sheets get all wrinkly and weird. It's like, oh, just let her sleep like a princess or a Barbie still in the box. Like, there's no, she doesn't need to be subjected to me in my, like, wrestling sweatpants, just belching in my, like, you know. What made you realize the relationship was serious? There was just something about him when I first met him that drew me to him. And even with all our ups and downs, I could always see his heart and who he was. So I, you know, just fell in love. It's kind of the greatest thing that ever happened to me. You know, I, I remember when we met, I had a sports talk radio show at the time and I interviewed her and I completely, over the phone, and I completely imagined that there was a vibe, like just complete narcissist run amok. I was like, oh, this is totally a thing. So then I went and I DM'd her on Twitter and I said, you know, I have a podcast. It'd be great if you came on the podcast. And she agreed to do my podcast. But I wasn't prepared for falling in love the moment I saw her. Like, I remember her coming off the elevator. It was a green elevator, palm tree carpet, because I was staying at a hotel at the time. And I, it was slow motion, just, whoa. Very unexpected. And what was it that really hit you? I mean, the fact that she can walk in slow motion. I thought that was pretty <laughs> odd. I didn't know I wanted someone like that in my life, my entire life, until that person walked into my life. And then when they walk into your life, everything, every struggle, every argument prior to, with anyone else, and every battle, and every heartbreak, it just, none of it matters, none of it makes sense, and you just, you just want to start this life right away. So I just didn't let her out of my sight from that moment on. Our next comedian, you know, from Saturday Night Live, Get something out of the way. You guys, you guys don't look the same either. Okay. What's it like watching this guy on stage, Jeannie? Oh, I, I'm, I'm just so um, amazed at how smooth he is. And and some nights, it's almost like he's walking on water. Like his set will just be. Like, he, he doesn't even have to take a breath. The audience has to take a breath. But he just keeps, like, right on that level. It's, it's really uh, phenomenal. You're very sweet. It's weird, though, because it's not, it's not a skill set. It's a, it's a presence. 
because I'm on stage having like a complete dialogue with myself. And really? Like, like I never hear nothing. I'm like, it's, there's always somebody's just going, repeating a punchline back or a waitress saying, excuse me, or the ice machines clacking and you know, flopping and whatever. But it, it's, it's always a cacophony, like a carnival of sounds. And it's just my job to just throw it all into one net and just manage it. I, I, I used to say like, it's, it's like throwing a net in the ocean. There's, there's 300 people in the audience. You just gotta hold all 300. And then after an hour goes by, you're like, ah, now you can go. These Bigfoot assholes, they just, and if you're out there, you need to just stop and stop trying to believe that Bigfoot is real. I, you guys are idiots, I'm sorry. I've seen seahorses a mile under the sea in the Marianas Trench, a male seahorse explode babies out of its belly, a man giving birth to baby seahorses underwater. But you can't get me a video of like an 11 foot Great Dane walking on its hind legs, knocking over garbage cans. I'm just, I'm such a fan of his, and I'm a fan of stand-up, because I think stand-up is like the most fearless thing that you can do. That it's like, there is no, nothing to hide behind, nothing to protect you from the audience. It's just, it's going up there and burying your soul and bringing people in. And um, I think that's what's powerful about comedy and that it's so useful in our society to help us move past things that are challenging and that might be uncomfortable to talk about. And you uh, took uh, comedy classes on a couple yes. of occasions. I think you went to two classes and you quit, but then you came back a number of years later and did it again. Uh, w what was the benefit you found in that? Um, you know, I, I get asked to speak publicly a lot and I'm a terrible public speaker. I get extreme, oh, I, I, I am, I'm, I get extremely self-conscious. I have stage fright. And um, I was talking to, um, someone and they they recommended this class it's called pretty funny women and uh it it helped me a lot and you know i would recommend it to anybody and you know how how often can you be at my age where you can learn something new and challenge yourself and and you know, come out on the other side. What was it like for you uh, watching her open for you? I was terrified. <laughs> Were you? Yeah, because if she stinks, it's like, oh no. And then she was great. And somebody, you know what happened is somebody gave her uh, a giant bouquet of roses. Mm -hmm. And so she did her whole set holding this giant bouquet of roses and she had lived like, like she was Miss Pasadena. And it was just, it all worked. And I was like, you should just always do like comedy or public speaking holding a giant bouquet of roses. It looks appropriate with you. Right, it could be my thing. He's obviously been very open about his addiction. I was listening to him on one show. I mean, he was talking about how he was snorting Adderall, that sort of stuff. What was the, the lowest point and how did you guys get through it together? Um, you know, when he talks about like, snorting Adderall and all that, like, I had no idea. You know, he was an excellent liar. He could, you know, um, deceive and manipulate situations. Like how so? Um, you know, if I called him out on something, like you were late for this, or, you know, you lost that opportunity because you had erratic behavior on the set, he could always find someone else to blame. You know, it was never his fault. He wouldn't take accountability. 
and it got to like a breaking point where, you know, it was, it, you and know. And what was that for you guys? His erratic behavior. It just, it was, you know, he, in one week, I think he ran out of gas three times in his car. You know, and, and it's like, how, how is that possible that you run out of gas? Like, what are you paying attention to? Like, what, you know, it just, it, 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 things just weren't right. And so then I had confronted him and I said, I just don't believe your lies. And so you don't even need to bother me with them anymore because I don't believe them. And I, you know, I tried to date other people and just, you know, end the relationship and, you know, but I, I was never going to end the relationship with his son. You know, I'd grown attached to him and, um, you know, and I worried about him. So finally just having conversations, I'd never talked to his agent. Like he never even introduced me to his agent. He would say, well, don't talk to my assistant. You know, he kept all of us at a distance so that we yeah, intentionally yeah. so that we couldn't compare notes. And finally, like we all realized we were seeing the same thing and that, you know, all the his job opportunities were drying up because he was burning bridges wherever he was going, um, you know, by not showing up on time, getting on fights with people on the set or in the club. So finally the decision was made to to do an intervention. And it was very distressing for me because I didn't know if this would be the, the thing that he would never speak to me again. But I knew it, ha it, it, it was time, like we had nowhere else to go. And you're thinking what that, that, that morning? He's gonna, he's gonna, you know, he, he could fight all of us. <laughs> he could punch all of us. You gotta understand, Graham, to be 50 years old at your own intervention is, it's humiliating. It is, that's why I guess the reaction of so many drug addicts is anger, because it's such a defense to go like, no, you're all out of line. But at 50, I kept so many secrets. I kept the fact that I wanted to get well a secret too. His life had become unmanageable. And you know, he, he knew he was gonna die if he didn't get help. It's a dead end street. Like, there's nowhere to go. Addiction will kill you. When you actually can be beaten down to your knees by your addiction, where the only conceivable way out is what you're being offered, and then you take it. My way led me into an intervention at 50 and going into rehab and standing in line for meds in pajamas at 50 years old. Like, that's, I have, I have empirical data that my way does not work. So when you surrender, surrender, like absolutely I'll do whatever it takes. And you do that and then you build slowly by slowly by slowly, one day at a time, and you learn a design for living. To share that with somebody is, re is it's like winning the Super Bowl, the NBA championship and the World Series all wrapped in one because it's not a game, it's your life. Why not run? and say, you know, the, the hell with this. Because I think every person at some point in their life needs help or support. It seems like there was a dozen exits that she could have taken for a much easier few years.
I guess she loved me until I could love myself. Like I get choked up even thinking about it, like how, how at my worst she's seen me and stuck with me. You know like in a cartoon where like there's a, a sheep dog it's gonna walk off a construction site but then the last second a beam comes up and saves it? Mm -hmm. Well it was like the opposite for me. She met me right as I missed the beam and went down into my bottom. When somebody sticks with you through something like that, that's, that's some paint you don't want coming off your canvas. Oh, this is what happens when you quit drugs. You, you, get, you look weird, yeah. And I quit drugs. I went to rehab two years ago. You know how happy I am to be on a show with my brothers from SNL? I was dead, oh my God. What's it like for you listening to him tell those stories, having kind of lived it firsthand? The first time I saw him do that, kind of go into that vein about the intervention. Oh, it's the worst surprise party ever. It's like the worst surprise. You walk into a room, everybody you love is sitting there, and you're like, hey, 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 oh, no! too sensitive and I was like is he is he trying to like pay me back by, by like talking about it on stage and I'm uncomfortable but then like and it touches you kind of now oh, even talking yeah. about it and but then I realized like how much that's helping people that he's so vulnerable and that he is making people laugh through it but it was the scariest event of my life. And then to see him embrace it and find the humor in it was so powerful and humbling. And I, I couldn't be more proud when he, you know, he just, nobody talks like that. It's really, it's, it's so important. <laughs> You have to lie to get a drug addict to their own intervention. Hey, buddy. Like, you can't outthink a drug addict. You got to come up with some scheme to get us to sit still. Here's what they told me. I had a podcast at the time, and I was told the next morning at 8 a.m. for my podcast, I was going to interview Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> and I was so high, I believed them. Seinfeld says you're either above them or below them. You can't vacillate. So that entire story is, oh, I was beneath below you. <laughs> so it gives me a lot of freedom. I'm the reason for all my problems, which was really liberating too, because if I'm the reason for all my problems, then that means I always have a solution. I know it's hard to talk about, but it has to feel so gratifying to have gone through it and then come out on the other side in the way you guys have. It, I mean, it is, but like you, you never really ever come out of it. You always, like, it, you take it one day at a time and you're yeah. grateful for that day. But like when, when he talks about angry packing, I can't believe that he could make it funny because it was so awful, that moment, because he's staring at me like, I'm going to hate you the rest of your life for doing this to me. And he's packing, as, and, I, and I'm, I'm like melting inside, but I've got to stay strong. And the fact that he can go up there and get a room full of people 
people to laugh, and then it's like, oh my gosh, like nothing is so scary that you can't find your way out of it, or using humor to like help you see it for what it is. There's two ways to angry pack. You can either never look at the person and be like, yeah, or you never take your eyes off the person. That's that was the power move for this trial. I'm like, yeah, you may have won the battle, but you never were gonna win the war. Duh! And I just never took my eyes off her. Then I got to rehab and all I had was 44 pairs of socks. What was the moment you realized you were kind of validated in the decision that you made and you could kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel? like something it's an it's another new thing that happened so like you know when he came back from rehab and and we heard a song that we liked and he just grabbed me and we started dancing in the kitchen like and that the joy the freedom that he had of just you know like being in love and the other side of it. I'll show you my before photo. My intake photo. Yeah. Oh, soulless. But you just stay each day. Like you just keep getting happier and happier. And as you go, my thing is I put I put as many people between me and my and it's really hard for me to get to my like she said, compared notes, and she wasn't she wasn't the person that did it. It was my agent, and she got brought in. So I think that was validating, like that you were brought in, not like having to lead the charge. I was prepared if if it hadn't gone well that I was going to move out and not tell him where I was. Like that, you know, I was, you know, like that was the best I could do in terms of. <laughs> well, I knew it worked too. Like my mom got sober when I was ten, so I was like, just, just you need somebody else to pull the emergency brake. I think they give you Seroquel so you don't run out of rehab. <laughs> you're having a tantrum, you take your pill, you're like, you know what, f this place, and f you, I'm out of here. <laughs> just gonna lay down in the driveway. Your parents got divorced. What do you remember from that period of time? Because that had a big in impact on you back then. Yeah, I mean, back then, you know, this was like the late 60s, early 70s. Um, parents, for whatever reason, believed you never told your kids anything. You never gave them the sad news. You just kind of left them in the dark. And I realized like that was the worst thing that you could do because, um, you know, as they were going through the process of separating, my dad would only come home on the weekends. So during the week, if I was over at my friend Megan's house and her dad was home, I'd say, well, why is your dad home? You know, is, why isn't he at the office? Because when I'd ask my mom, where's dad? She'd say he's at the office. Mm. And so I thought all dads were at the office during the week and only came home on weekends yeah. and nobody ever explained it. And so it got to the point, you know, of you know my sixth grade graduation and my dad's not there. And 
all my friends are asking me, where is he? And I don't have any answers. Like I just said, oh, he died, you know? And it was, it was the only way I could get them to stop asking me the question because I couldn't say, I don't know where mm -hmm. he is. That made you feel how at the time? Yeah, it made me feel abandoned. And, you know, it, it, it put a sense of um, loneliness and fear and being isolated, you know, and feeling different than everybody else who had their dad there. Because your brother Johnny once said, I could never understand why he'd want to go to Las Vegas with a Playmate of the Year rather than take us to Disneyland. I guess I felt the same way. And then as, you know, then as their relationship ended and they went their separate ways, then that's when I got to have more time with my dad. So when I was like, you know, 14, 15 mm -hmm. years old, you know, then I was meeting, you know, his new girlfriend, whoever that was at the time. And um, I got to spend much more time with him during the summer. During the winter, he would take us to USC football games and different events. So everything that I did with him was always around sports or movies. That's, that's kind of what we did. I wanted to ask you about your mom because she's obviously is a bit of an unsung hero, doesn't get near as much attention, but the role she played in your life is what? I guess that's where I get like the the softer, sweeter side. My mom was, you know, just this beautiful, um, sweet. Um, she just was always very giving and very lovable. And um, I think, you know, she wanted her family together and she was heartbroken by the marriage ending. And um, I don't think she ever really recovered from that heartbreak. Really? And, you know, it was, it was hard on her. And, um, you know, I miss both my parents, but I, I think people tell me I remind them of my mother, and that's a really nice compliment. How did you find out you had another sibling? Um, you know, right after my um, dad passed away, um, in 2013, my mom called me, and she was at the be beginning of, you know, of her dementia. She told me the story about when they were first married, that they had given up a child for adoption. And um, she said that they gave away the child because she was a girl. And so like, okay, that doesn't make sense. I go, well, if you gave her away because she was a girl, why did you keep me? Yeah. And she goes, I don't know. I'm like, okay, well, like, why are you telling me? Do you want me to go find her? And she goes, no, I just, you know, I just needed you to know. So I realized that this was something that my dad had told her, you know, to keep from us kids, like, that, that she waited until he had passed away because he's the only other person I could ask to verify. I asked a lot of his, you know, former coworkers, his former secretary, do you know anything about this child? And, 
and they, they didn't know anything about her. They'd never heard of it. Somebody said, well, you know, your mom's probably just confused. She probably saw a movie or something. And she's, so I didn't think anything about it. And then five or six years later, I get a letter, a certified letter, explaining, you know, from this person who says, I think I am related and um, through the Freedom of Information Act in California, she was able to get her adoption papers. So I looked at the adoption papers and it's exactly what my mom told me. You're thinking what? I'm thinking like, this is her, you know, I have a sister. And, you know, I, I, I said to somebody, I go, I went from being Marsha Brady to Jan Brady in like <laughs> one day, you know, I'm now I'm the middle daughter. But on the adoption papers, I could see these were my parents' signatures. And, you know, I was like, this is, this can't be a coincidence. And um, she had gone on Ancestry, and I'm not on Ancestry, um, and she connected with an aunt and, you know, cause she had always looked for her birth parents. She mm -hmm. knew she was adopted. And so sure enough, this was it. And so I, you know, took the letter. I, it, it came right before Christmas, you know, at this time my mom, you know, is still you know, living, but she's, you know, like she gets very confused. And so um, I let all my siblings know, and um, I wanted to put my mom with her because my mom had searched for her uh, her entire life and um, missed her. And when my mom told me the story, she said in her mind, she had named her Marie and that's my middle name. So I knew, like, you know, I just always had a feeling this story had some level of truth to it. And, um, you know, so I wanted to take Marie to meet her mother and for my mom to be reunited with the baby that she had given up. How amazing did it feel to be in a position to be able to do that? It was amazing, but you have to understand like the timeline of what was going on with the team at that time. So, you know, uh, the team was struggling and my mom was living in Las Vegas. And so I couldn't get the time to take Marie to meet her mother. And, um, you know, finally, you know, and as people will remember, um, Magic decided to leave his job as head of basketball for the Lakers. So gave you a lot of notice. Didn't give me any <laughs> notice. I heard before, uh, you know, I was one of the last ones to know. And I said to Linda, I go, this is, this is becoming so complicated. How am I ever going to get, I, I need to make this happen with my mom and Marie. And Linda said, let's just go. Let's just drop everything, you know, take, you know, 48 hours and just, we'll go to Vegas and we'll meet Marie and we'll put them together. And that I think was one of the greatest 
moments of my life was to be able to give that to my mom and that she knew who she was and that, um, you know, I got to meet this sister who looks amazingly like my mother and I felt like I'd known her my whole life because so many of her mannerisms are familiar. Really? Even though we have no common ground about who we know or anything like that. There just was this familiarity. And, um, you know, uh, my mom passed, you know, um, about eight months after that. So I'm, I'm really glad that I was able to accomplish that. How tough of an upbringing did your dad have? Um, my dad came from very humble beginnings. Wyoming, right? Yeah, Wyoming. His mother was a single mother. This is like the depression, coming out of the depression, you know, so she would work a job during the day and then she would, you know, at night go on dates. You know, she was looking to get married and um, she would leave my dad home alone and, you know, lock him in. He was like a latchkey kid. And, um, you know, he would wake up and be terrified, you know, because he couldn't find his mom. And, you know, he, he talked about those, those times in his life. He was very vulnerable and fragile. Um, and, you know, she remarried and her new husband wouldn't adopt my dad. He had the last name Bus in a family with the last name Brown. And then they went on to have two more kids. So he, you know, he always felt left out because he wasn't, um, you know, he wasn't part of the family. And that exclusion, you know, um, that, that pain made him who he was because he never wanted people to feel excluded. And that's why it was really important to him about um, Laker games. He wanted everybody to be a Laker fan. Nobody would be excluded from being a fan of his team. And you were talking about the poker lessons he gave you. I, I think this plays into it, but it was him and a colleague, they were aerospace engineers, mm -hmm. put aside $83.33 from their monthly payments until they accumulated $1,000. Mm -hmm. uh, take it from there. And then they bought uh, their first apartment building. And um, they did all the, the, the handyman work themselves, rented out the units, and created positive cash flow. And then my dad, having the mathematical mind, knew, well, if I can do this with one, let's multiply it. And so that's when they started to amass this real estate empire and certainly real estate in Southern California in the 60s and 70s, you know, there was a population boom and, um, you know, he made a lot of money. At the time when he decided to buy the Lakers, what did people think of the deal he did with Jack Kent Cook? It was one of those things that he, he spent two years trying to convince Jack Kent Cook to sell him the team. And Cook at the time was living in Nevada because he was going through what ended up being at that time the largest divorce settlement in history. But he, he moved to Nevada to become a resident of that state. 
in order to try to get around some of the the uh, community property. And um, so he wasn't attending Laker games. Mm -hmm. And so my dad would fly to Vegas and meet with him and, you know, continue to work on him to get him to sell the team. Because my dad saw this undervalued asset that wasn't being paid attention and that he knew that if he could get control of that asset, that he could bring more value to it and uh, you know, eventually did, but it was it was a very complicated transaction where they literally, you know, were trading land and at at one point, you know, Cook wanted the Chrysler building. And so my dad somehow, you know, got that through different real estate transactions and he owned the Chrysler building for about five minutes. And, you know, he loved to tell that story. Um, but, you know, here he, he comes in and his reputation, you know, he, he owned a Playboy club. You know, he loved to play pool, loved to play cards. And, um, you know, the old guard at the league office were kind of like, you know, who is this guy? You know, he's kind of brash. And is he going to come in and ruin the league? And, um, you know, so he almost didn't get approved. The impact uh, you think he's had on the NBA would be what? Um, I think, you know, he was somebody that, um, you know, really thought about the marketing and the merchandising. And so, you know, he was the one that brought in the Laker girls, you know, that had never been done before. He liked having, um, what we called the Laker band, but it was really made up of USC and UCLA band members. He liked that college atmosphere, that it was, you know, that it was a constant, um, you know, something going on. When the Laker girls came out, you know, it was, it was the ultimate in, you know, um, giving each gender the stage, right? So the men had the stage when they took the break, the women got center stage. And so, um, you know, it was about, you know, shining a light on great talent, having entertainment. And, you know, the, nobody had really thought of the NBA like that before. The timing was good and, you know, the, the uh, passion for giving Los Angeles a team that they could be proud of uh, was really important to him. And so the investment and the passion and the just the, the brilliance of Jerry Buss really created an asset. Why did your dad decide to give Magic 5% of the team upon his retirement? Um, he had years left on his um, contract and of course, we all know when Magic first retired, um, it was because of uh, HIV. And so instead of my dad paying off that contract, he gave him a piece of the team so that he would always be part of the team, no matter what. How true is it that your dad was telling Magic that you know he wanted you and Magic to one day run the team all the while? Uh, telling Jim, your brother, he wanted 
you and Jim to run the team? Magic wanted to learn everything about business from my dad. Mm -hmm. So he mentored Magic, and that relationship in the 80s was, you know, you'd never seen anything like it um, in, in sports before that. Men of really two different backgrounds and ages, um, really coming together to form a partnership and feel the same way about what they wanted to accomplish. You know, and I talk about that's like the winning formula in sports. Um, and at that time, Jimmy was, wanted to be a horse trainer. And so, you know, he didn't see his sons as being interested in the family business, whereas he knew- Because they weren't at the they, time. They yeah. weren't, you know, Johnny, um, he's done a lot of different things. Johnny's very talented. Jimmy really loved the horses. And so, you know, that's, that's where he started laying his plan, like magic, I want you to, to uh, run the basketball. But, you know, my dad knew that, you know, he probably was gonna do bigger things than just, you know, run basketball with the Lakers. Tell about the emotional call that you get one day from magic telling you that he had sold his stake. It was disappointing. Um, it, it affects you now, even thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, it, it, it's like I, he did very well for himself. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but like, you know, the value has only gone up, and you know, you can see, you know, he's he's an investor with the Dodgers. And now he's with the the Washington Football Team, you know, and he should have a piece of this team. But I think it was hard for him to see the Lakers struggle after my dad passed. And um, we did struggle. And then Kobe retired, and it just got worse and worse. When Magic resigned, he does it in the media. Yeah. Uh, and that's after a three-hour meeting the two of you had had the night before. You knew nothing of his plans. Yet your first public remarks after that are still overwhelmingly positive. Oh, yeah. Um, how, in a situation like that, do you have the capacity to be so kind? Um, because I saw the same thing happen before when um, he, in 1982, he asked to be traded from the Lakers because he wasn't happy with the system that Paul Westhead wanted to run. He took the ball out of his hands. He couldn't play with the joy that he'd grown accustomed. And so my dad was like, wait, 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 <laughs> let's talk this through. We're not gonna make that decision now. Um, so I know that magic, if something's bothering him, he doesn't hold it inside. He lets, he lets you know. And I, I can see now that this wasn't the right job for him. You know, it requires a lot of time away from your family. And he'd earned a place where he could take some time and be on a yacht and, and enjoy his summertime when we're all dealing with free agency. But I know if I pick up the phone and I say, I need you, he's there. Mm -hmm. he's, he's always gonna be there. It would have been difficult for me, for him to tell me to my face, because he, he knows I would have cried, and we would have had to, to live through that pain. So it was almost easier, and I was late that day, because I had had a flat tire, 
And so when I was on my way to the game, um, I got get a call from Tim Harris, our, our team president, and he said, I, I, I answer the phone, I go, I know I'm late, I'm on my way, I'll be there soon. He's like, no, 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 don't come here. He goes, Magic just resigned. I'm like, what, wait, what? So I said, okay, you know, I'm near the office, I'll go to the office, you come here, let's figure out how we're gonna deal with this. Um, and do you try and get magic on the phone? No, 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 because okay. I know once he makes up his mind, he makes up his mind. Yeah. But I, in other words, had I been on time, mm -hmm. he probably would have had to tell me to my face. Mm -hmm. So he had mentally prepared to give his resignation to me. I wasn't there. The media was there. Mm -hmm. And that's that's when the story spills out. Yep. So like, I'm not upset it happened. It was just, it took me off guard. And then, you know, we, we had to let the coach go, Luke Walton, who, you know, had been a player for Phil and that I felt very close to. I mean, it, it, it was a lot, a lot of stuff going on. Phil Jackson, who's the Lakers longtime coach, you were in a relationship with him, I think for 17 years. Mm -hmm. On the, the Hulu doc front, what if, anything that your brother Jim and GM Mitch said impacted your view on how they engaged Phil to come back? I am sure for him he's making the right decision. But for what I could see, it just, you know, I know <laughs> they made a mistake. <laughs> because your brother had come to you asking if you thought Phil would come back. You had said, reach out to Phil. They have the conversation. Phil's under the impression he has 48 hours to think about it, had some health stuff going on, consulted the doctors, decides he's going to come back. And before he can make that call, gets a call saying they hired uh, Mike. Do you think the decision was intended to be personal at the time? I felt like it was personal to me and, and, and I was embarrassed that Phil was treated that way by my family. You know, he didn't deserve that. And so uh, he was willing to come back and coach Pal and Kobe one more time. And that, you know, we still had an opportunity because we had Kobe, because we had Pal, that we would be able to you know, bring the team back, go for another championship. And instead they chose to hire Mike D'Antoni, who is a great coach, but he wasn't the right coach for Dwight Howard and Pau Gasol, you know, that, that he wanted a different kind of team. I wished we would have had the opportunity to see what would have happened if Phil had come back that third time. You said that period destroyed you. Um, I think you had come back to the office only to basically be asked to leave because of the just physical impact it was having on you. I was devastated and I couldn't stop crying. It was such a waste of opportunity. It still bothers you yeah, today? it does. W what about it? You know, because we were, we had the talent to possibly win another championship. And, um, and that, that's what gets to you more than the, the personal stuff? Yeah, because, well, I mean, then maybe Kobe doesn't get hurt. Mm -hmm. 
you know, then Kobe could have played out his career the way it should have played out mm -hmm. instead of being, you know, kind of trying to come back from the Achilles and eventually retiring and, and you know, with a, with a team that, you know, wasn't very good. What about the first conversation uh, with uh, Jimmy? I don't think I could, I, I don't think I spoke to him for a while after that. And, you know, and Phil, in, in some ways, like Phil was relieved, you know, like he really didn't want to have to go back to coaching. So your dad passed away. You have, you're essentially given final say uh, for the team. What's that process for you like going about determining kind of what your dad's final wishes were with regards to the Lakers? My dad had told me, you know, I expect you, Jeannie, if a change needs to be made, I expect you to do it because you will have the authority to do that. And how I looked at it was that, that Jimmy didn't really um, take the time to understand where I was coming from running the business side of the operation and that you know when we signed our new 25-year deal for for our broadcast partner their question to me was you know we know how the team has operated the last 25 years are you going to operate it the same way the next 25 years well of course that's what we do. We're Lakers basketball. Jim wasn't part of those meetings. Mitch wasn't part of those meetings. I had to convince them. I was the person held accountable for what they were doing, and yet they wouldn't give me an opportunity to give, you know, just kind of share with them, you know, my thoughts. You know, how are we going to price the tickets? What kind of team are we? going to deliver to our fans. And I kept getting this like, well, we're going to have a lot of cap space. And it's like, people don't buy tickets to cap space, right? How are you supposed to run your business when you don't know who's going to be on the team? And then, you know, we go into free agency and we ended up with Timothy Mozgov and Lou Aldang, who are great players, but we had, we'd been selling cap space for all these months, and now cap space is delivering players that, you know, maybe weren't on the top of. Aren't gonna put asses in seats. Right, I mean, you know, so to speak, right? So it was really difficult to be on the business side of the operation and not know what you know what's coming next and then you know they had mike brown as coach and then they switched to Mac mike d'antoni and you can't turn over a coach every 18 months because you the roster can't reflect those that coach's style and it was too hard to read and that's how our fans felt they were like you know what is Laker basketball? Kobe and I know it's a, a tough subject, but he, he was somebody that did give you advice during this mm -hmm. period of transition with the front office transition as you were kind of deciding what to do with your brother and what to mm -hmm. uh, do with Mitch. Um, how about the best piece of advice you got during that time? It was about how you execute, right? And isn't that like so Kobe? It was like 
have a plan, know what you need to do leading up, know what you're going to do afterwards. It isn't an impulsive thing. You, you have to be serious and committed. You have to follow through. And um, that impacted you how? Oh, just, you know, I mean, it was like it was like hearing my dad again, you know, and that, um, you know, he had faith in me. We had a, a, a really good relationship. He wanted to see the Lakers do well, but he was very much about, you know, if you're going to do it, do it right. I don't regret anything that happened. I mean, it, it was. You know, yeah, it was a little rocky and, you know, meaning that we we made the change. Magic came in. What did you learn about yourself um, when you're kind of fighting for your survival during that period? <laughs> Just you have to have a small circle of people you trust and you have to do the work because there's no amount of hiring PR people to get people off your back. The, the only proof will come in wins and losses and to be the last team standing in 2020 in the bubble um, was a real testament to, you know, the team that, that Rob had put together and um, the sheer will of LeBron James and you know, what the NBA created by giving us a chance to finish out that season. You went through a six-week period where you lose your mom. NBA Commissioner David Stern passes away, then Kobe and Gianna. How did that period affect you? You know, that it was January of 2020. Um, uh, we asked the league to give us one game to postpone one one of our games because it was difficult to even think about coming back and playing basketball but eventually we did come back and play and LeBron gave the most amazing speech I realized that, that is how we're going to heal is like you know staying together and you know putting our energy into into basketball. And then another few weeks, COVID hits and they shut it all down. And, and that left me reeling because I couldn't find comfort. I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I felt so lost and disconnected because we weren't allowed to be together. I cried many, many nights to sleep because I just, I lost so much and so many people that I could talk to and, and you know, turn to. And, you know, and the one last thing we had, we, you know, we couldn't do. How did you get through that time just personally? I don't know if I'm ever gonna get over it. You know, I don't. You know, it, it, it's just it's just continuing on this this path and, you know, um, staying strong 
And, you know, when my dad first bought the team, you know, his goal was to make the Lakers the best team in the NBA. And, you know, winning in 2020 brought us number 17 and brought us even with the Boston Celtics. And so when you ask me, you know, what drives me in this business, and it's, it's really to continue the legacy that Dr. Buss started. And if we could get that next championship, number 18, that's what keeps me going, because I can't think, I can't, the pain is still there, and it still hurts. Kobe, in some ways, played a role in now having the uh, best you know, player in the game here. Um, what was it about that conversation that he shared with you that, you know, I think it was a poolside bungalow near his Newport Beach home that uh, in a way influenced LeBron down the line deciding to come here? As Kobe, you know, would say, like, you know, the Lakers are the best and should have the best in the league. And if you can get LeBron to come and be a Laker, you got you got a chance to win. I think the, the Laker greatness, you know, was something that LeBron appreciated. And, um, and, and sorting the front office stuff. Yeah. And, and um, you know, the idea that um, he is now the all-time scoring leader and that he did it wearing a Laker uniform means a lot to me. Uh, although it is, it's not a Laker record, it's a LeBron record and a, a testament to his longevity in this league. Um, but, you know, that was, that was uh, a really a highlight in this last season. And whether it's LeBron or Kobe, what have you learned over the years about how best to work with players of that caliber? When you have talent, you know, you you make sure that that talent can thrive. So you do everything that you can. And, you know, his work ethic and what what he does and how it inspires the rest of the team, it's like it makes everybody's job so much easier because everybody wants to be part of this, you know, special thing that he's the leader of. Was there a part of Kobe's Hall of Fame induction ceremony that meant the most to you? Vanessa did the speech and, you know, her bravery and her class has been um, inspirational to me. Like, I would do anything for her because she's, she's lost more than anybody could even imagine. Um, so, and she was so beautiful and eloquent in her speech. And I know Kobe talked about going into the Hall of Fame. So, you know, they had those conversations. And certainly, uh, you know, we were able to retire his jersey in, in having that celebration and retiring not only number eight, but also number 24. Um, was really such a special thing to do. And I will always be grateful that we had the opportunity to celebrate Kobe the way we did, because Kobe came to me 
um, and had decided to retire, but he let me know in November. And he only, he only wanted to talk to me. He didn't want to tell the basketball side because he wanted to announce his retirement very specifically, and he didn't want it to leak out. And, and that's how Kobe was. He had like a vision for how he liked to do things. And he knew he could trust me. And he knew that I could accomplish what he wanted. It was like the third Sunday in November. And we were playing, I think, the Indiana Pacers. And everybody who was at that game, who was present at that game, got the letter. And those were the only people, like no other letters were printed. So if you had the letter, that, that was proof that you were there the night that he announced his retirement. So no one could say, oh, I was there. No, well then where's your letter? Because everybody who was in attendance got this letter. And you know, he always had such a great style. So um, we had a whole season to celebrate him. And what a gift that is. Right. That, um, you know, and I think even he was surprised at every, every city we went to, they celebrated him. Even the teams that hated him yeah, right. couldn't help but like celebrate, you know, Kobe's last game at the Garden. And, um, you know, it turned out to be something really special for such a, a dismal season. We weren't going to make the playoffs, you know, that led to that last game at Staples Center where, you know, he scored 60 points and the place went crazy and we made it Kobe night and we, it was, it was like a carnival. It was, you know, and, and I, I just take such comfort in knowing that he knew how much we loved him. You know, we, we never missed an opportunity to tell him that. Why historically have you been hesitant to get involved in like basketball personnel decisions when, you know, it seems like you're, I mean, literally as qualified as anybody based on your body of work? I don't get involved in the X's and O's. Um, I empower people that do understand the X's and O's. And if they're not, if I can't trust them, then, then they're not the right person for the job. And so, like, I, I can't deal with people who know something's coming down, you know, the street, and then they try to downplay it until it hits me in the face. Right? Like, I want to hear, tell me the good, tell me the bad. Yeah. There's no reason to be afraid of me. We can work through any kind of issue as long as there's transparency and communication. And they know that ultimately I, I am accountable for everything that happens in this organization. I don't, you know, throw anybody under the bus. <laughs> so, you know, that I, um, you know, the hardest thing for me to, to be involved with is when we have to trade a player. But um, there are some front offices that would leak stories about why 
a certain player should be traded or that they're lazy or they're overweight so that they can take some of the heat off themselves when they do make that trade. We would never do that. We are always straightforward. We understand the rules of the game and you know that, that players can feel good about coming here and being part of something um, that they know they'll be supported. And you're also known for not nickel and diming players too. In, in fact, you're actually proud of, of them when you know they've earned the big contracts through you guys. There's um, somebody that's out there writing a book and um, he said to me that I have a reputation of, of um, running a bare bones organization. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. Like, we've paid a luxury tax the last few years. Like, like, how does that equate to how the Lakers operate, except that someone's trying to create a false narrative about, um, you know, um, I guess, me doing things on the cheap. If you want to call this bare bones organization, I like to think it, that we're efficient, that we don't have a lot of waste and uh, I'm not gonna spend needlessly. When the young players that were making no money like Austin Reeves and Rui Hachimura, when they got their deals, how ridiculously happy she was that these guys got what they were worth. There was no like, go back, go back and counter at a lower price. The business brain was completely overwhelmed by her character. And her character and her values was these guys are fantastic and integral to the success of the greater organization. And, she, and they're good people. And so her genuine joy that these guys got paid, it speaks to how beautiful a person she is. One of your top lieutenants, Tim Harris, once said, you use your authority in a responsible and cerebral way. <laughs> uh, what do you think that means? That means I don't panic and that, you know, any, any problem can be solved. It may not be easy, but there's always a way to figure out what the next right step is. In what ways can you be tough? Um, you know, people not living up to their, you know, potential. I can't stand wasted talent. That seems like a crime to me. So, you know, uh, people that are kind of uh, winging it don't do their homework. I, I don't do well with that. How would you describe her work ethic? Tireless. It's not a job you punch out of. It's not like, fixed all the pipes. Now I'm gonna go home and have a beer on my deck. It's, no, it's the phone rings all the time. And I don't know if she ever can put her feet up and say, done with work for the day. So it's, it's, just, a, it's just a tireless work effort. And it's, it's a willingness to just be the buck stops there. You know, it's, you, you can only go so far up the ladder. I feel like she's, she's the top of the food chain there and it's gotta be exhausting. I am definitely a person that if you're gonna do something, do it right, mm -hmm. you know, and you know, really throw yourself behind what 
whatever it is that you're doing, be in the moment. I'm a horrible multitasker. So like, I'd rather do one thing really, really well and be completely satisfied than slice myself up and kind of get a C grade in a bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. That isn't satisfying to me. I'd much rather be completely focused and you know, pay all my attention and accomplish a goal. Our conversation continued on the road as we drove by the LA Forum. So what memories come back <laughs> when you pass this? Um, a lot, like, you know, here's you, you, the corner of Manchester and Prairie, and, um, you know, it's still a beautiful building with the columns. So frightening moment for you once, you're leaving the Forum, you're robbed at gunpoint, and you get, I think, a, a Rolex, tennis bracelet, <laughs> Jeez, engagement yeah. ring, yeah. championship ring mm -hmm. taken. Uh, what do you recall from that? Um, it actually, if you can believe this, it was actually when I showed up for work at 10 o'clock. And I parked my car and I saw someone and they disappeared into the stairwell. I didn't think anything of it. So now when I get to the top of the stairs, um, he asked me what time it was. And I looked at my watch and I said, oh, it's 10 o'clock, I'm late. And when I lifted my head back up, he had pulled the gun on me and he said, give me the watch. And, you know, every, give me all your jewelry. And you're thinking what at the time? And I, you know, I'm just, I'm in shock, really. So I take everything off. Well, now he says, okay, go back into the building and, um, you know, don't call the police and, you know, because otherwise I'll come back and kill you because I know who you are and I know where you work and I'll come and kill you. And so I picked up my purse and then as I'm walking away, he realizes he hasn't stolen my wallet yet. So he screams to me to turn back around and in that split second, I have to decide, do I keep walking in? Because now I have a gun on my back and I right. don't know if he's gonna shoot me. So I just ran into the building. And, uh, you know, that was a horrible experience that, ha that happened at 10 o'clock in the morning, which means he was casing me. Like he knew, he knew my hours, he knew everything. Did they ever get the items recovered? Um, no. And I remember um, they they ran ran a story on the news about the uh, the championship ring and how it had been stolen and you know it, like it made the news because it was the Laker championship right. ring. Well, and didn't you have to they lined a bunch of suspects? Up. Yes, I had to go to a lineup. What, what's that experience like? It was not a pleasant experience. And I, I, I physically, um, you know, was ill from it at that point because I couldn't be sure of who, you know, if I had the right person in the lineup, I just said, this isn't something that I want to pursue any, any longer. But, but you thought you spotted the person. Yes, because just... the physical reaction that I had that it made me think that has to be the person. But I don't know if it was the nerves of being in that situation. You know, each person has to repeat. 
what was said to you and, and I'm like this is it's like it, it's over an overwhelming experience how did going through that affect you um, it made me trust my instincts like I should have known when I saw someone go into the building at night that that was unusual but then I you know I was like ah, you know I shouldn't like overthink things and so after that it was like no trust your instincts and you know if something doesn't feel right no reason to be a hero and yeah. try to push it tell about when you're at the forum and prince is <laughs> supposed to play prince um was a uh, artist who you know was very much about you know the whole vibe of a show and you know kind of a visionary of how he wanted to present his music and you know we're excited sold out show doors are going to open at 6 30 you know shows at eight o'clock and um now we just opened doors and we're bringing the fans in and he calls and says you know like he's not the show's canceled he's not He's not feeling it. And you're thinking what? I'm thinking like, we've got fans already coming in the building. What are we going to do? So now um, I gather, you know, the team and say, okay, we're, you know, the, the show's off. Now we've got to, you know, move everybody out. And I'm thinking I can't, I can't send the people that are working for me out to deal with this, I have to, I have to join them. I have to be on a bullhorn just like that, you know, everybody else and, you know, and, and be a leader. So we go out and, you know, I'm expecting a riot, you know, like that's usually what happens when you cancel a show when people are already here. And so it was kind of like, okay, the show is canceled tonight. You know, you will get a refund. You know, the box office is closed now. You can get a refund at point of purchase starting tomorrow. And people were like, oh, okay. You know, he, he didn't feel it. Okay, that's okay. Like, like Prince fans were like, well, if, he, if he's not feeling it, like, of course he shouldn't do the show. Which is amazing. Which was amazing. Like, I was like, I like Prince fans, so great. <laughs> And did, did the show work out okay when he oh, yeah, finally performed? Yes, of course. Yeah, he would always play late. He'd play long. He'd always play long. He loved putting on a show. And then, you know, they when a show goes long, they have to pay the overtime and they have to pay the, the, the fines that the city would put on for having a show that's going past 11 o'clock. And he'd never have any problem with that? No, no, no. Your 20th birthday. I read a story <laughs> that you celebrated with Michael Jackson, um, uh, but that's all the stories ever said in any of the articles that I've read that. So what, uh, well, what's he, the story there? They had a show, the, the Jackson 5, they were still the Jackson 5 then, they had a show at the Forum. So I got to go down and meet him and get a picture taken with him. And, you know, I was, I was so excited to meet him. And then, you know, he just, you know, put his arm around me and, and uh, you know, he's just, it was a great show. It was fun. Is there anything else that stands out from the meeting with him? 
Um, no, but you know, like all the Jacksons, they, um, you know, would come to Laker games and they, you know, loved the Laker girls and, and they wanted to know who did all the choreography and it was one of our Laker girls, Paula Abdul. And so they hired Paula to uh, choreograph their music videos, and that's how she got her break in the music business. By the way, did I uh, read this correctly, that you've only asked somebody for an autograph uh, once <laughs> yeah. in your life, and it was Tiger Woods? Yes, and it was like Tiger was young. I just, there was just something about him that was like so inspiring to me, and I got to meet him, and, um, was like I, you know, I don't ever do this, but will you sign something for me? You and still it have did. it? Yeah, I do. It's on my business card, the back of my business. Oh, card. is it? Yeah. Are there ever people that come to the games uh, that you're starstruck by? I mean, I remember when Toby McGuire, he started coming to games like during the three P years, and. Um, and I, and I remember he, I just heard that he was cast as, you know, the Spider-Man. So that was like three Spider-Mans ago. And- um, You're as big of a comic book fan yeah, as so, anyone. So like I had to like, I, you know, had to take the opportunity to talk to him. And, and I'm sure like he was like, what is she talking about? And I said like, okay, now that you're Spider-Man, is it like this? Is it like, do you do the web like this? Or do you, is it this? Cause it's like, that's two very different, like, right? Is it like, is that how you do the web? Or is this how you do the web? So um, he was so friendly and nice and sweet. So then when he made Seabiscuit and he knew I liked the horses, horse racing, he asked me if I wanted to be an extra in the film. So I was an extra in the film for Seabiscuit. Oh, that was fun. a lot of fun, yeah. What's Jack like? I, you know, Jack, I never really got to know Jack all that much, like. Really? Well, my dad was like, you know, like, you should probably stay away from, <laughs> like. Oh, because Jack was a little bit of a ladies man? Yes. Wait, but you really never got to know Jack, though? No, not <laughs> like, not like how you would think, like, after all those years. Would did you ever have like a memorable conversation with him? Um, he loved the Lakers. He, you know, like keep up the good work, Jeannie. Like it was just stuff like that. How close were you to buying the Cowboys? My dad um, tried to buy the Cowboys and I, I met Jerry Jones for the first time uh, when the Super Bowl was here. And um, we kind of reminisced about that story. Oh, did you? Yeah, and you know, my dad, you know, always felt it was, you know, because he kind of had a reputation of being, you know, a ladies' man, kind of, you know, a maverick kind of a guy. Then they let Jerry Jones buy the I team. know, but, it, well, oh I mean, he's, you know, I don't know Jerry that well, but it was just, it was funny because he knew, he was very well aware of the story and, and you know, kind of grateful that he got the team instead of my dad. After your dad lost out on that team, how much interest did he have in pursuing other NFL teams? He did. I mean, he, he was interested in buying the Rams and had been talking to uh, Carol Rosenblum, 
before he passed away. You know, I think he would have he would have loved to have owned an NFL team, but it just wasn't in the cards for him. Is that something you ever have any interest in pursuing? No. <laughs> no. Why not? Um, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, I, I in a way, I kind of owned a football team because I played fantasy football for about 10 years. <laughs> and what do you mean? <laughs> I played fantasy football. My team was I'm the L- LA United. And <laughs> I'm not going to buy an NFL team well, because I, I played fantasy I mean, football. Honestly, like, fan- have you ever played fantasy football? Yeah, yeah. It's like I felt like I really owned a team. And, um, you know, you, you get very invested in winning and losing in the NFL because there's only 16 games. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like got to win them all. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so I guess I kind of owned a team. But you don't play fantasy football anymore? I, I gave it up because I, I really didn't like the name of the, the Washington team before they changed it. Uh-huh. And I just got to the point where it took the joy out for me because, and I know there's a lot of people who, who liked that name and, and felt it was a respectful um, tribute to the Native Americans, but I knew it also bothered some people, some Native Americans, and I just, it's like, this is supposed to be fun, it's supposed to be inclusive, so I just, one year I said I just won't draft any player from that team, and I thought, that's really not fair, because it's not the player's fault that they're named that team, so then I just said, I, I just, I, I just can't do it anymore. And then, of course, they changed the name, and I, maybe now that Magic is uh, part owner, maybe I'll, I'll go back to playing fantasy. you ever see a scenario where the Lakers aren't in your family? I can't imagine that. That's not the way it should be. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, like, and there's really no reason for the team not to be. So. And talk about the lengths your dad went to in terms of transferring assets, et cetera, to figure out how to pass the team down, uh, given tax implications. Yeah, he, I mean, he what he did was, you know, he was very forward thinking, and it was important to him uh, to keep the team and the family. So he, what he did was he created a trust, and he transferred... Um, ownership stock of the team into the trust and as each transfer occurred he would pay the taxes at that time because most often when you transfer an asset of that size um, you know after uh, passing there's you know an, an inheritance tax a massive one and so most people have to sell the asset in order to pay the taxes on the estate. So he didn't want us, he didn't want that to happen because he'd seen it happen. And he went to uh, each of his kids before he passed away asking basically if you guys want him to hold on to it or, or sell it. And ev- everybody was pretty much universal in wanting to keep it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, it was really his decision to make. And like, I, you know, I just supported him in whatever he decided. It was really a, a labor of love that, you know, he did for us on our behalf. 
And so I really appreciate that he did that. The documentary. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? I felt a huge obligation to remember all the stories. You know, a lot of the stuff I'm telling you, like people don't know the history and I feel like it's gonna disappear with me because who, who's gonna keep it going? Right. Who, who's gonna pass down these stories? So especially with the Lakers and all, you know, all the background of, you know, how he purchased the team, the relationship he had with Magic, um, you know, the down years. It just really felt good that people wanted to share their stories and we needed to archive it. And uh, we won uh, the Emmy for Best Sports Documentary. So that was pretty good. Winning time. <laughs> what do you want to uh, know How do you view it? We don't have anything to do with it. I always thought that the NBA would be able to protect the intellectual property that was of the league and its teams. And the idea that somebody could tell our story without our permission seemed uh, really, I, I really couldn't accept it. And I kept thinking that something will discourage them from pursuing it. But, um, you know, Adam McKay is a very successful filmmaker and, um, you know, people will back what, you know, his vision is. And did you try and shut it down? Oh, yeah. We tried for a couple of years to, you know, you know, really leaned on, um, you know, the corporate lawyers. Yeah. And, you know, and I thought that they would be able to stop it. But, um, you know, I guess the, the explanation given to me is that, um, that it's protected under First Amendment rights that as long as they tell the story accurately, then it's fair use. That being said, there are people who are familiar with our story that did participate and um, are credited in the credits and some that aren't credited. But um, I made the decision to watch it because I really, I felt you know, I just kind of wanted to see my dad again. And um, John C. Riley, I think, does a phenomenal job portraying Dr. Bus. Before the first season aired last year, um, the they they had they the production had bought seats from a tickets broker to sit on the floor and they put some of the stars to sit there, I guess, to generate some, you know, publicity for the airing of the show. And John C. Riley thought you were gonna kill him, right? Yeah, he, he thought I was, I, I literally ran into him in the chairman's room and he, and I, and I, I had to make that decision whether oh. I was gonna shake his hand and I decided that I would introduce myself. And he goes, he goes, you don't have to introduce yourself. I know who you are. He goes, are you here to throw me out? 
Did it like I, go like being serious or joking? Oh no, he was very, he was scared. Like, and I said, no, I just, I need to tell you something that, you know, my dad and I would go, you know, to the movies and I'll never forget seeing the movie Chicago. And um, after the, we watched it, my dad said, I think that guy is gonna win an Oscar for this part because he, he plays, when a funny guy plays sad, it's, it's more poignant. And I never forgot that comment and that it was about John C. Riley. So I said, I just wanted you to know that he was a fan of yours. And um, I think he'd be, you know, honored that you, somebody he, whose talent he admired, is portraying him. And I think that, you know, it's it's kind of startling for me because physically he does resemble my dad. And they did so much research because in the show, my my dad calls me by my nicknames and that it it's it's jarring for me to hear that is it yeah to hear someone say genie pie you know like my dad is the only person called me genie pie and like to hear that like is it's crazy and then there you know there's one scene where and it, it really was my dad he loved to go to like hamburger joints and then he'd like to just sit in his Rolls Royce and have a hamburger from a hamburger joint. And so there's a scene where he and Magic, you know, are having a hamburger, you know, kind of leaning on the Rolls Royce. And and my dad, you know, says, you know, I'm really looking to build something special, Magic. And I, and I you know, I'm looking for a partner. I'm looking for somebody that understands my vision and you know that's what magic's like i'm in you know like they bond over this you know hot dog sitting and eating a hot dog in a parking lot in, in la and that was just such a quintessential la moment and it really was what made their bond special you watch it each episode at once or binge it season two i've only seen the first episode because okay. it kind of it kind of triggered me and like, it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard. To, I go through like the loss all over again. And like, there's some ha really happy moments and, you know, but it's also, also really sad. You watch it by yourself or with people? Um, I watch it usually by myself, but um, you know, this season, Jay actually was cast in a part so okay so how did you feel about that well he came home and he said you know he goes i got offered a part in winning time and um you how know you like i go kidding you? me like he goes i you know I, I won't take it if that if it would make you uncomfortable i go look you're an actor you know you're trying to get your career started again you know, it, it, it doesn't bother me. Like you do, you do whatever you want. You didn't write it. You're just an actor playing a part. Mm -hmm. And so he did take the part. We also went to the Lakers home opener with Jeannie as part of this episode filming. And I was super excited to have the opportunity to do that. 
Jeannie had suggested that when we were originally talking many months ago about the possibility of doing this. And then when it came time in the weeks leading up to it, she's like, are you sure you want to do this? It's, you know, a, a really busy day for us. Maybe we pick another day. I'm like, Jeannie, what do you mean? You were the one that suggested this and sold me on how exciting a, a day that is. Absolutely, we want to be there. And uh, sure enough, not only did she deliver on that, but then some. We got to talk to Kevin Hart. We uh, sat with Jeannie for part of the game, talked to LeBron's agent, Rich Paul, and so many others. Uh, it, It really was a fantastic evening, and we were thrilled to have the chance to be a part of Lakers home opener. That's it for my chat with Jeannie Buss. To see clips from our time in Los Angeles, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Also, remember to leave us a rating and review. We really love to get your thoughts on the show. Thanks again for listening.